0: So thank Thank you, Matthew, and thank you all for coming this morning to this Breakfast with the Chiefs session. It's rather a humbling experience, actually, to be called a Breakfast with the Chiefs. When I look back at some of the the great healthcare leaders that have done this type of presentation in the past, people like Dr. Bob Bell, uh, Danielle Martin, Christine Elliott when she was Ontario's patient ombudsman, and some of the future speakers that you're going to see here uh, you know, people like Helen Angus, the new deputy minister, so uh, thank you again for, for this. I also had a chance to look at the list of participants, and I was really pleased to see that a number of you identified yourselves as being part of the emerging health leaders group, so wonderful that you're here, hopefully you'll be able to network with, uh, with many people. So I'm going to talk today a little bit about health technologies, and this new concept that we've developed at Caddeth called Health Technology Management. Uh, In 2008, uh, Dr. Don Berwick and his colleagues from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in the United States came up with this concept of the triple aim, this pursuit of better health, better population health. (whistles) That's a wonderful microphone. I'm gonna have to stand still. I hate standing still. (laughs) Uh, better uh, population health, better uh, patient experience for that individual patient, and better value for the taxpayers. Now, their contention was that it was feasible to pursue each of these three aims simultaneously. And that's what we're talking about with our new concept with health technology management, that we are trying to pursue better population health, better patient experience, and better value for Canadian taxpayers. Now, I've got, I've got a wonderful staff at Catath, a few of them are here today, uh, and I always, when I uh, put together my PowerPoint presentations, I'll ask them to go through it, uh, uh, check it out, make sure there's no spelling errors, etc. This time they seem to have slipped in another uh, slide, just as a reminder to me. Uh, lots, of, lots of things that we're going to go through today. So part of what I'm going to talk about is this disruption. We're really seeing a lot of disruption in the Canadian healthcare system. Maybe if I backed up a little, it'll be a little better. Uh, Disruption in the Canadian healthcare system. Anything you can do on this? Yeah, we're we're trying to find the IT guy. (laughs) We're going to have to turn the St. Mike's one off. St. Mike's one off? Okay, that's this one? Yep. And then for the moment, we're going to have to use this. You can use this, okay. Which is horrible, I know. Okay, we seem to have lost our IT guy, but at least it's a little better. You're not getting all of that feedback. So disruption, disruption means many things to many different people. And we hear about it a lot in the healthcare system, whether it's looking at trying to fix hallway medicine, uh, whether it means that there's disruption in the scopes of practice and who can, can do a particular intervention, whether it's disruption in our ability to pay for new technologies. So, I'm going to speak a lot about disruption in our healthcare system today. And with respect to these healthcare technologies, medical devices, clinical interventions, diagnostic tests, and pharmaceuticals, I see three real important challenges facing the Canadian healthcare system. The first is that there is a really robust pipeline of new and very disruptive technologies. Second, that because they are so disruptive, there is an increased demand to get early access to clinicians, to patients. And that's creating a real affordability crisis uh, in our healthcare system. So I'll get into those uh, throughout my presentation. And I'll also like to then get into some, some of what I see are potential opportunities, and even more than opportunities, solutions to overcoming those three challenges. And once again, so I'll talk about those three challenges and these three solutions. Before I do that, I have to give you a little bit about who we are. Some of you are probably quite familiar with Cadeth, and many of you are probably saying, what the heck is a CADTH, and what does that acronym actually mean? So we're a a not-for-profit corporation set up in accordance with Canada's not-for-profit corporation act. Um, We have a a series of bylaws that identify the owners of our organization as the deputy ministers of health of all of the provinces and territories and the federal government, Health Canada, who provide funding to Cadet. And that's every province except Quebec. Quebec has their own agency, NS, uh, all three territories and the federal government. So they own us. They're the members of our corporation. About 58%, or 58% of our funding comes from Health Canada through a contribution agreement. Another 28% comes from all of those provinces and territories. And about 15% comes from other more private sources of revenue. We have a, an application fee that we charge to pharmaceutical companies for the products that they, that we review. Uh, and then a few other programs to help us raise money. So we like to consider ourselves as a health technology assessment organization that is moving towards becoming this health technology management enterprise. We have about 200 staff. Our head office is in Ottawa. We also have an office, couple of blocks down the street from here on University Avenue with another 40 or so staff. we our staff are, uh, we have clinicians, physicians, pharmacists, nurses, other types of clinicians, lots of scientists, PhD trained scientists, masters trained scientists, information specialists, project managers, health economists, so a, a good assortment of really highly specialized individuals to help us do the work we do. Uh, that's our, our our staff family, but the broader CADA family is about four to five hundred people. We have a number of expert committees that help us make recommendations, a number of advisory bodies, all kinds of contractors and consultants that help us do the work we do. And we have two basically broad portfolios of work, one related to pharmaceuticals and one related to medical devices and we Consider medical devices to be medical, dental, surgical devices, procedures, programs, diagnostics, clinical interventions, anything that requires evidence that isn't a pharmaceutical. And what do we do? Well, we provide advice, tools, recommendations, Uh, implementation support, all kinds of different things that we provide to our key customers who are either the the health ministries across Canada or practitioners that work in the public health care system. We've got a few flagship programs like our pan-Canadian oncology drug review where we look at all new cancer drugs and make reimbursement recommendations to the provinces and cancer agencies. They typically will not reimburse any new cancer drug or or an existing drug with a new indication until we give them a positive recommendation and then we have the common drug review for all other drugs Uh, we have our rapid review program rapid evidence reviews where we can take questions from anybody in the public healthcare system including those of you who are in Ontario you can ask us a question and we'll provide you with some evidence on that particular topic in whatever time frame you need that. If you need it in 48 hours, a week, a month, three months, we'll negotiate those timelines with you. A lot of misconception about the difference between what we do, HTA, Health Technology Assessment, and what Health Canada does, the regulators, or the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, European Medicines Agency. And a lot of people think that all we do is we take that regulatory decision and we add cost to it. Well, that's fundamentally wrong. That's not uh, what we do. Health Technology Assessment is a science. It is a comparative science. Uh, Health Canada and the regulators, their role is to look at the benefit versus the risk of new technologies. If there's more benefit of of a drug or a technology or a medical device, they will approve it. Uh, They also look at the quality, so it's safety, efficacy, and quality from the regulator standpoint. We're looking at the value of a new drug or a new technology or a new intervention and we look at all of these different factors in a multi-criteria deliberative framework. Again, always in comparison with the current standard of practice. And it really truly is a bit of a balancing act. At the regulatory level they're looking at benefit versus risk. We're looking at the clinical outcomes, the safety versus the value or the cost of that technology. And the other key balancing act that we face is speed. Uh, there is the need for getting our evidence into the hands of clinicians, patients, policymakers as quick as possible and balancing that with the credibility of the advice or the recommendations that we give. So we have lots of great methodologies to help us with that. Now here's a shameless plug for a conference that we host every year called the Caddeth Symposium. Uh, We are hosting it this year in in 2019 in Edmonton in April. Uh, A great conference for those of you who are interested in pharmaceutical policy, in medical devices, clinical interventions, this healthcare technology space. It's a great opportunity to network, to hear about the latest and greatest in what's happening in this field. So let's get into some of those challenges, this challenge of robust pipelines, and these are not just full pipelines, these are pipelines with these very disruptive technologies. If we look at in the medical devices space, this is the operating room of the future. As you can see here, a 3D printer, virtual reality. Um, some high-definition imaging equipment, robotic surgery, perhaps a gamma knife and things like that. The thing that's missing and maybe even some artificial intelligence because what do you see that's missing in this slide? The staff. There's no staff. There's a patient. Artificial intelligence. So there are some really promising advances happening in that clinical intervention the medical devices space. And I say scary at times as well because they are so disruptive. It means we're going to have to look at things very differently in our healthcare system. Lots of minimally invasive technologies or, or even non invasive technologies, robotics, precision medicine, this next generation sequencing, gene editing, where we're actually splicing bad genes out of our genome in a, in a, a technology called CRISPR. And then artificial intelligence and machine learning, and what does that mean? It's really disruptive to the regulators. How are they going to regulate algorithms and data? This artificial intelligence, so very, very disruptive. Now let's move to pharmaceuticals, and what's disruptive here? Well, typically in the pharmaceuticals in the past, Um, companies would come to market with a drug that would treat a condition, a chronic disease condition. And they'd be looking to hit a home run and come with that blockbuster medicine, a billion-dollar drug, uh, annual sales, treating large numbers of patients, and probably at a fairly reasonable price. Well, that whole blockbuster era is dead, but there's a very new and different type of blockbuster that we're starting to see now. So this is a list uh, that was created in 2012 of the top 10 best selling drugs of the 21st century. Now some of them uh, started their sales in the 20th century, but look at the amount of money that was made. Lipitor, uh, the uh, number one seller of all time, it's it's exceeded 150 billion dollars for Pfizer in global sales. Now, many of these have generic uh, options at the moment, but a lot of money that was created. What's interesting about this list, however, that this is the typical old-fashioned blockbuster. Uh, uh, Small molecules, chemically synthesized drugs, broad population bases treating hypercholesterolemia and asthma and things such as that. But there's two Mm. drugs on this list that we're starting to see differently. Number five, etanercept, and number 10, adalimumab, biologics. Now look at this list in 2017. This is the amount of money that these companies have made on those individual products just in one year, global sales. What do you see here? All five of them are biologics. Much smaller, more focused indications. Many of these products have multiple indications. $18 billion in one year for uh, Adalimumab, AbbVie's product. It's also now the number two selling drug of all time. It's it's attained uh, more than $100 billion in revenue. So now we're into this era of the new or the different type of blockbusters. And I've just categorized them under four headings here. Drugs with novel mechanisms of action. These are the gene therapies we're starting to see this new class of drugs called chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapies, CAR T-cell therapies. The first one was just approved in Canada in September of this year. Wonderful drugs. There's 30 to 40 of these new types of drugs coming. Very disruptive in that no longer are we talking about treating a disease, now we're talking about curing a disease. And in many of these cases, preventing a disease. Most of these CAR T-cell therapies, uh, the early ones, are for treating different types of cancer, but there are many of them in the pipeline that are looking at treating rare diseases and even more common diseases. And then there's another class uh, of drugs coming called RNA interference drugs. This is taking treatment way upstream, going right to Uh, uh, the RNA, messenger RNA, that actually uh, produces the proteins that cause disease. So it's interfering with the production of the proteins that cause disease. The first of these was approved in the United States just recently. Nobel Prize winning uh, technology. An explosion of drugs for rare diseases. There are somewhere in the range of between 7,000 to 8,000 different rare diseases, depending on your definition for what's rare or ultra-rare, about 95% of all of those different rare diseases have no known treatment. And these are very significant and in some cases life-threatening diseases. So what a market, what a wonderful market. And we're starting to see lots of innovation, lots of companies, lots of researchers looking to find cures or managements for these rare diseases. Immuno-oncology and other cancer drugs. It is a wonderful time in the oncology field. The immunotherapy, so here again, very disruptive, rather than just looking at treating a cancer based on its location in the body, lung cancer, breast cancer, et cetera, we're now looking at treating or or promoting our immune system with these immunotherapies, with checkpoint inhibitors, and all kinds of new treatments. And we're starting to see a bit of a combination mania uh, involved here. Now, each of these drugs, of course, is very expensive to treat. And now, we used to talk about expensive drugs for these rare diseases, ultra-orphan drugs that had very high costs, $500,000 per patient. This is a term that I heard uh, Dr. Andreas Lopakis use, because we're now starting to see very expensive drugs for broader populations, different diseases, and these more common diseases, like migraine, depression, dermatitis, psoriasis, uh, epilepsy. Wonderful new drugs coming to the market, but again, very expensive. So with all of these wonderful new technologies, whether it's a medical device, a new intervention, artificial intelligence, or one of these drugs I talked about, who wouldn't want early access if we're talking about curing a disease? I certainly would. Early access and equitable access. And so there's three things that I see happening to really drive that want for early access. And the first is this consumerization of healthcare, empowering patients. Patients want to get involved in their healthcare system more than ever through applications on their phones, uh, through these uh, Apple watches and Fitbits that are out there, all kinds of electronic means of taking better control of their healthcare system. The regulators are facing significant pressure to do their work a lot faster and a lot sooner uh, for these new uh, technologies, In the United States, the Food and Drug Administration through the 21st Century Cures Act uh, has now had to develop a whole bunch of expedited regulatory pathways where they're providing approval of new drugs and new devices based on very different evidence packages. We're moving more into a phase two trials uh, that are, are, uh, and single arm trials, all kinds of new ways to get the approval of these drugs a lot faster when they're promising. And in the US, they even have the right to try legislation, even before clinical studies are done. If a patient sees promise for it, their clinician can request it. In Europe, the European Medicines Agency has this process or, or program that they refer to as adaptive pathways. Medicines Adaptive Pathways for Patients, or MAPS. And the typical way that a regulator would approve a new drug, a new medical device, is at a point in time when they're satisfied with the evidence package submitted by the sponsor or the maker of that drug or device, that at that point in time they make a very binary decision. They say yes or they say no. Well now this adaptive pathways process is much more iterative. They'll start looking at the evidence and maybe they'll give a conditional approval for a small group of patients for a smaller or a different type of an indication, lots of controls and then we start gathering the evidence and we make a different recommendation at at a different point in time. We either grow the uh, patient population, grow the number of indications, so a very more adaptive process for the approval by the regulators and in Canada, Health Canada has their R2D2 Um, initiative underway, Regulatory Review of Drugs and Devices for all of the Star Wars fans, R2D2. So similarly there, they're looking at all kinds of ways of improving the regulatory pathways through prioritization, uh, through some sort of expedited means to bring these new drugs, these new technologies to patients in a quicker time. And then lastly, uh, there are a whole bunch of new players in the field. You look at Apple. Apple now has an application for ECGs. You can get that downloaded to your phone to get, have a, a rhythm done. Um, they want to be one of the leading firms in mobile monitoring. IBM Watson. Now Watson in the US has had some recent challenges, for those of you who've heard, uh, about our f- famous Watson computer system. And then this, this a three-way partnership between Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, and J.P. Morgan Chase, three very large profitable companies in the United States who are sick and tired of paying what they're paying for the, their clients, their uh, uh, employees. They have a, in the range of about a million employees that they provide health care funding to support. So they want to change how that healthcare is delivered. And that what they're talking about early on is that AAA, better health, better patient experience, better value, and they're trying to take away the middleman in the healthcare system in the United States, the insurance companies, uh, the pharmacy benefit managers, the distribution companies, so we'll see where that, that takes us as well. And lastly, those challenges of the robust pipeline, early access are really creating this affordability challenge for all payers, whether they're a public payer or a private payer. And in the past, and what we do and look at is a cost-effectiveness analysis. Our health, economic, health economists are producing models, economic models, building all kinds of the clinical information and assumptions into it and coming out with a cost-per-quality adjusted life year, a metric that looks at the cost-effectiveness ratios between different therapies. Cost-effective used to be the only thing we we needed to look at. The clinical effectiveness, the harms, and the cost-effectiveness. Well, no longer does a drug or a device that is cost-effective mean that it's also affordable. Here's a wonderful example uh, for all of those three clinical challenges. This is a product called Tisagin Leclucel Kimria. This is the first of those CAR T-cell therapies that I mentioned that was approved Uh, by Health Canada in September of this year. Wonderful product, talking about curing patients in some of the early clinical trials of this product. Curing children with uh, a a type of cancer and adults. Typically, uh, uh, blood-type cancers, leukemias and lymphomas. Also has a a price tag in the United States of $475,000 per patient. So naturally, these are patients suffering from cancer, they want early access. Very promising, very expensive. Demonstrates all of those challenges we are talking about. And there are many more in the pipeline. I know Gilead, I saw Gilead rep here, has a CAR T-cell that was already approved in the United States and in Europe, coming to Canada as well, and many, many more of them coming. Cures, but very expensive. So let's start looking at these opportunities or solutions. I didn't know whether to call it an opportunity because there's still things we have to do, but I I see them as potential solutions. So let's start putting uh, stakeholder engagement on steroids. And there's all kinds of different stakeholders, whether it's researchers, the industry themselves, but the two in particular that I want to talk about are patients and clinicians. So why, why engage patients? Health Technology Assessment International, there's a global society uh, of individuals, companies, organizations like Caddeth that connects uh, about the science of health technology assessment. And they have a patient and citizens um, working group that came out with this values and quality standards for patient involvement. How and why we should engage patients in the work we do. Uh, because it's relevant to them. They are the people that uh, are using the technologies. It's only fair if we're using these technologies that we involve them, we engage them. They will help us understand the equity issues, and they'll provide legitimacy to the recommendations and decisions that we make. We've been heavily involved with engaging patients probably since about 2010. We we now have patient or public members on our board of directors. We have patient or public representatives on all of our three expert committees. Uh, We allow patient groups to provide input through a templated process to every drug and every medical device that we review. We have a patient liaison forum. We provide um, money, funding for them to come to our annual conference and to other meetings. And then we do an annual consultation session, uh, which we just did last week, where we talk about all the different uh, programs, products, and new things that are happening at CATA. It doesn't mean we are done, however. So we also wanted to look at some of the evidence of how we've engaged patients. This is a bit of a word map. We did a study about three or four years ago um, that looked at the patient engagement or the patient input we had to... 30 different drugs that had gone through our common drug review uh, program. And what we were looking at was what were the outcomes that the patients identified as being most important to them in that particular disease or for that drug that we were reviewing. And this is a word map of what they felt were the most important outcomes. We then went and looked at the pivotal clinical trial that got that drug approved by the regulator. And guess what? only 50% of the outcomes that were important to patients were incorporated into that clinical trial. We have a long way to go to really listen to what, import, what is important to patients. We've also done a bit of a listening exercise recently with a number of patient groups that know us quite well, uh, as well as some of the, the patient and public members who are on our expert committees and, and some of our staff. So how can we do this much better? And here's what we heard. Uh, most important to them, make sure whatever you do, it has to be meaningful, meaningful to them. They're there, yes, they're, they're advocating, but they're advocating for themselves, for the broader patient group, and they need to be engaged, and it needs to be respectful and meaningful. And the most important thing we heard as well from them is let them get involved in co-creating whatever you're developing or putting in place. Don't develop it and come to them at the end and say, here's what we did, what do you think? Get them involved early and often throughout the process. So clinicians, how do we engage clinicians and how better can we engage clinicians to help support some of those challenges that we're facing? So connecting this HTA, the science of HTA with the evidence-based medicine of a patient and a physician that interface. There is this working group that I'm going to mention here, GENATA, it's, a, it's two global organizations, Guidelines International Network, uh, all of the individuals, typically clinicians that develop clinical practice guidelines in uh, countries all around the world. And INATA, which is the International Network of HTA agencies, about 50 different agencies, like Caddiff, in 30 or so countries around the world. So we do HTA, we look at evidence, Clinical practice guideline developers make recommendations uh, through their guidelines looking at evidence, but we were not connected. We were not talking to each other. So there is this uh, global working group. I co-chair it with Dr. Holger Schunemann actually from McMaster University and we're really trying to bring together the HTA and the guidelines communities. Choosing Wisely is another global initiative and very active in Canada. We've actually supported some of the clinical societies as they've developed uh, their lists of things we should either stop doing or do less of. And I think there's much more we could do there. We're developing clinical panels to go beyond just the recommendations through our expert committees, but getting clinicians involved in helping understand how to launch, how to use how to better prescribe this whole appropriateness issue. So clinical panels with expert clinicians that are involved in treating actual patients to help us understand what those recommendations should look like. And we're developing partnerships with numerous clinical societies, uh, again, to get them engaged in that evidence generation that we uh, are looking at. So the second opportunity is moving away from just looking at a new drug or a new technology when it is launched, at that market approval, that point when the regulator says approved, you can sell your product. So going across the life cycle of the technology, getting involved in that pre-market space, helping them design the clinical trials, so they better support the payer and the patient needs, not just to get that product approved by a regulator. We still have to manage the entry of the product. We need to get much better in that post-market space, not just in the safety aspects, but also in the effectiveness. Reassessing technologies, and then the toughest part of, of this life cycle is the managed exit taking something away when it no longer provides any value to patients or to the healthcare system. That's really hard to do, but we need to get better at that. So one of the things that we have, one of our programs, and we launched this in 2015, is a program specifically for pharmaceutical companies. They are our actual customer when we're getting involved here, and a number of the HT agencies around the world have similar type of program. So what we're doing is we're giving them advice on how to design the clinical trial, but not from a regulatory aspect. What are the quality of life measures? What are those outcomes that are important to patients? And what are, how should that trial be designed to better support patient, clinician, and payer needs? We're also working very closely with our colleagues at Health Canada through this R2D2 initiative. Uh, The typical process for a drug or a medical device is the regulator looks at the evidence and provides market authorization. It would then go to the HTA body. We look at it from a value perspective. Then there's some price negotiation. Typically that happens and a government or a payer says we'll reimburse it. They list it. So if you look at that as a very sequential process, it can take a lot of time. So are there things we can do much better, much smarter, and in parallel rather than in a sequential move? So that's what we're trying to do. We are the scientific advice program that I mentioned. We do that now, and a number of the uh, scientists and clinicians from Health Canada are now participating as observers right now in our scientific advice program. Uh, and we'll probably be launching that as a joint program with Health Canada. So now we're giving the regulatory advice and the payer advice at the same time to the companies. We're only doing it for pharmaceuticals at the moment, but there is a, a thought that we could be doing this as well for medical device companies. Our reviews, parallel reviews, rather than Health Canada doing, we wait till they're done and we start, we're starting to do them in parallel, before they give that notice of compliance. Real-world data is so important with all of the, these expedited pathways that the regulators are using. Um, there's so much uncertainty of that product, both safety and efficacy and effectiveness at market launch that we really must get be- uh, much better at looking at how that technology is performing in the real world. So collecting, analyzing real-world data. And getting ahead of the technology curve, understanding what are some of those really promising technologies so that we can better prepare our healthcare system when they actually come to market. Uh, Patient engagement, the regulators haven't been very good at connecting with patients, so they're uh, also looking at doing that jointly with us. And then the priority review pathways. Uh, Typically, again, Uh, The priority review that a regulator would use might look very different from what we would look at as being a priority or what the provinces would look at as a priority. So there is a move underway right now to try and align all of those expedited or priority review pathways so that we all look at them very similarly. And in this post-market surveillance space, Uh, Most of the regulators have a requirement to monitor the safety of a drug or a technology in that post-market space, but we need to go beyond just the safety. It needs to be looking at the effectiveness of that product in the real world and the value that it has to patients and to the healthcare system. So we are are launching a program that's referred to as reassessment to address those areas where there was a lot of uncertainty at market launch. And the outcome of that reassessment, so it may be a drug uh, that we looked at two, three years ago through our PCOTA or CDR program. We've got real world data now, real world experience with it. We'll reassess it to determine, uh, are we still getting the value that was promised by the manufacturer when that product was launched. Uh, So the outcomes could be, we might revisit the clinical parameters. Again, putting a clinician panel together to to, uh, uh, either grow the clinical indications or the patient population or maybe shrink it. Uh, It might give an opportunity to renegotiate the price. If it's a very high price and we're not seeing the value, let's renegotiate it to a price that actually makes sense. Or if it's giving us really good value, Maybe there does need to be a price premium when that value actually is greater. And then these awful words of delisting, disinvestment, de-prescribing, but we really need to have um, good conversations about that. And probably engaging the patients, engaging the clinicians is the only way to do it. Uh, expecting our, our policymakers just to do that is very challenging from a from a political standpoint. And the last of the opportunities is this concept of evidence informed implementation. It's really supporting implementation of the recommendations, of the advice, of the tools, both at policy uh, and at clinical practice. And that does require better alignment again between the regulator and the HTA bodies. It requires Uh, that engagement of patients and clinicians. So how do we do this evidence-informed implementation? Well, there's a lot of things underway right now that are helping in that way. As I mentioned, this pan-Canadian prioritization, so what are the technologies and drugs that are most important to patients and to, to the Canadian healthcare system. We really have to look at it from an equity perspective as well, um, ensuring that people that live in rural and remote areas of Canada, that indigenous peoples, that homeless people, people living in our correctional system, all citizens have equitable access and early access to needed therapies. There's this concept of value-based procurement, so moving beyond just that request for proposal, lowest cost product to a a more of a value-based, criteria-based price Mm. negotiation concept. Uh, You've all heard of uh, the uh, National uh, uh, Panel on Pharmacare, Dr. Hoskins is leading. One of the key components that they would look at it with a PharmaCare system is a Canadian or a national formulary, both for hospitals, all of our hospital system, as well as our community-based drugs. So they're, they're seriously looking at developing a national formulary. Risk sharing between the manufacturers and the payers, that whole concept of the value of the drug or the technology, probably developing managed entry agreements of some sort, that demonstrates we will pay you for this if your product works, we're not going to pay you if it doesn't work. Canadianizing the evidence, and this is a new concept. Uh, There's a group of the evidence-based gurus at McMaster University, Gord Guyatt, Roman et etc. They're developing a Canadian internal medicine textbook. Most of the textbooks we use are American-based or or globally based. So they're in, uh, developing this and trying to Canadianize the evidence. We're very interested in that and we're having some conversation with them and then all kinds of digital tools, uh, capitalizing on, uh, on what uh, comes out of Canada Health Infoway with their it system, the Canadian Institute of Health Information and all kinds of digital applications that are available both for patients and for clinicians. So that brings me back to this concept or this philosophy of health technology management. We're not throwing away the science of health technology assessment. That's still important. But it's much broader than that. So we've, this uh, strategy, this health technology management strategy really speaks to those three things, strengthening our engagement with stakeholders and more of a life cycle approach to technology assessment and an increased emphasis on implementation support. We've developed a new strategic plan that we launched in April that speaks to all of these, closing the gap between evidence, policy and practice, adopting a life cycle approach to health technology assessment and anticipating getting ahead of the technology trends and curves. So if we do that, if we continue on this path, I think these truly are solutions to Mm -hmm. the the robust pipeline, to the affordability crisis, and to the need uh, to have uh, early and equitable access. So let's put stakeholder engagement on steroids, let's assess these technologies throughout their life cycle, and let's get involved with evidence-informed implementation. And if we do that, I think we can transform how we manage health technologies in Canada, to have uh, early access, early and equitable access, making sure that those technologies are used appropriately and we can manage that affordability issue. Thanks very much and I'm uh, open to any questions. (laughs) So as always, uh, there is an opportunity for some uh, Q and A. And if we have any questions, there are again the mics over on the sides. Um, And so we do have one coming up here.
1: Okay. Thank you very much.
0: This is um, we're a member of a number of the international bodies and we look very close to every every drug or device that we look at we look at uh, whether or not another HTA agency like nice in the UK or PBAC in Australia uh, have made a recommendation uh, and there's all kinds of great conversations that happen on the methodologies we use and what could be adapted or shared uh, in that health technology assessment space one of the key challenges is uh, there was a great saying um, that came in into a journal a number of years ago Uh, If you've seen one HTA agency, you've seen one HTA agency. Some are within government, some are not-for-profit like we are, some do drugs, some do devices, but there really does need to be better cooperation in the clinical evidence that we assess. The part that truly is unique and needs to be contextualized is the economic component, so we all kind of hang on to that, but there is great cooperation happening now in the clinical methods that we use to look at the comparative effectiveness, the comparative harms, and how we engage patients and clinicians.
1: I'm sure. third pillar, which is value. Uh, and I'm wondering who is defining value, because uh, at the end of the day, value depends on the price. And the price uh, is not determined through your uh, through your agency. It's determined through a process of negotiation. Uh, so two connected questions. Who's defining value? Uh, so do your recommendations set? bar of which value is crossed and not crossed. And secondly, do you go back or could you go back, understanding how this ended up in, in our systems, so a particular drug, and whether, in fact, it did provide value, even on the clinical trial evidence and the cost, do you, because often your recommendations say uh, if, if good cost effectiveness can be achieved. So do you set a bar on where that should be? secondly, do you actually go back and check whether that was achieved after
0: the whole process is completed? So we do actually look at the value. That is really one of the key components of what an HTA body is about. Uh, The economic models that are either produced by the company that we look at, we analyze, we bust, Um, uh, has all of the clinical parameters, everything from the clinical trials, lots of assumptions built into it, and we come out with this metric that gives an indication of the value of that technology. And and, uh, what we use and what the UK uses and a number of other countries is this metric of a cost per quality adjusted life year. Now what we also do to help the payers, either the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, the provinces and territories, is we produce a number of other tools that allow them to move forward um, with their um, price negotiation with the manufacturer. Now some of that we don't share publicly. Almost everything else we do is public information. But this might be some budget impact information, um, some additional analysis we've done on when we would see a drug or a medical device uh, being uh, cost effective at what price level. So there'd be some ranges that we would show in there. Um, lots of sensitivity analysis that we would do, so all kinds of additional information that we would provide to our, our customers, the payers. And the second, part, what? second part, remind me. Do you go back? Oh yes. So right now we don't, but this is this concept. We need to go back and start looking at the real value in real world, uh, the real world. So this reassessment concept, we're developing the framework for it now. And we've had conversation with a number of the provinces on moving it forward. Uh, And hopefully next year we'll start looking at doing those actual reassessments of the value. To make that work, uh, there has to be a willingness from the payers, the people that are making the decisions, to do something with that reassessment, either to renegotiate the price, to delist, (coughs) disinvest, or to change the clinical parameters for it. So that's what we're we're working on with the, the provinces now and the cancer agencies.
1: Hi, um Matthew city from Half Air. Further in the presentation, you talk about expensive drugs for common diseases. And I'm wondering generally speaking, is this justifiable? you know, maybe to manage attracted epilepsy, for example, or do you find generally speaking that it's
0: not justifiable? Yeah, that's a that's a loaded question and uh, so each, and each of those situations we would look at separately, of course. If it's a new drug for, uh, for migraines, if it's a new drug for uh, psoriasis or epilepsy or whatever it is, we would look at that drug and try and determine what the value is. Now, is the price justifiable? Uh, to me, it really comes down to is the real true innovation Uh, in that product, not incremental innovation, not another me too, but is this truly treating patients differently? Is it curing disease? Is it uh, uh, really beneficial to that patient? That's when we'll see some of the economics to help justify some of the price levels. Um, But are are they justified? Well, I think there's lots of conversation even to our uh, neighbors to the south that the cost of, of drugs is getting out of control. Okay. Oh, you One more. Hi there. Simon Age help Boy. We'd love to see the
1: greater evidence space around a digital health tools, but you know, there's a lot of challenges with, with, with generating that evidence. Um can a lot of the different kinds of tools that are out there.
0: Do you see any evolution in the way that uh, evaluation or evidence? Yeah, we we have to, actually. Uh, We've um, interacted with Health Canada, the Medical Devices Bureau, David Boudreau, who currently leads that. um, And uh, what they are looking at is a very different way to look at digital health. Software, software and medical devices, artificial intelligence. They're they're going to host a a best brain session in February of next year on artificial intelligence because we really have to change the... uh, um, the paradigm for how we look at digital health and the new medical devices, because what we do now really doesn't provide us with the, the knowledge we need to approve them or to uh, demonstrate the value of those technologies. Okay. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you very thank you. much. Okay. All right. So again, thank you very much to Brian
1: O'Rourke. Um, as uh, you're leaving.